0: don't stop, don't go back, just get everything down that you want to say. And then like a sculpture, getting all the clay in one place, then you could start shaving it into something that is worth reading. And I define it as worth reading is by the time I'm done, if it looks like something I would want to read if I hadn't written it Mm. and reads like it was written by a better writer than I am.
1: A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Gary Tobbs, author of five books, including The Case for Keto, Rethinking Weight Control and the Science and Practice of Low-Carb-High-Fat Eating. Gary is the co-founder of the nonprofit Nutrition Science Initiative. He's an investigative science and health journalist. He's written a book called The Case Against Sugar, another one called Why We Get Fat, and Good Calories, Bad Calories. He is a former staff writer for Discover and correspondent for the journal Science. His writing has also appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, and Esquire, and has been included in numerous best of anthologies, including a literary companion to science. His central hypothesis is that carbohydrates overstimulate the secretion of insulin, which causes the body to store fat. Gary studied aerospace engineering at Stanford University He graduated from Harvard with a degree in applied physics. He earned his master's in engineering at Stanford, and he got a master's degree in journalism from Columbia. So there's no shortage of academic pedigree with Gary. As I said, he's the co-founder of the nonprofit Nutrition Science Initiative which is a nonprofit 501 501c3 medical research organization dedicated to reducing the individual economic and social costs of obesity, diabetes, and related metabolic diseases by improving the quality of nutrition research. Gary's work is particularly interesting to me. Gary is an unconventional thinker. Gary is willing to question the established wisdom when it comes to what should we eat and what does it mean to be healthy and to live well. Gary studies something I'd never heard of, he calls pathological science, the science of things that aren't so. A big part of the reason Gary's work is interesting to me is that my dad died due to complications from diabetes, along with a long list of ailments that were, I believe, related to his lifestyle, his level of activity, what he ate, things that were highly treatable, if not preventable. And I know that my dad is certainly not unique in that. This is an incredible phenomenon that has happened in our culture and around the world in societies that have adopted a Western diet you know, over the last hundred years. And what Gary's work, what my guests work today offers is a view into really, why is that happening? And what can we do about it? This conversation was recorded while Gary was in shelter in place at his home in Oakland, where he has a beautiful view of the golden gate bridge. You might hear his dog in the background at one point. We've all lived through some crazy times. You can find Gary online at GaryTobbs.com. That's T-A-U-B-E-S. And you can find him on Twitter at Gary This is a broad conversation where I indulge my curiosity quite a lot. If you're interested, oh, and I do love this. I love that Gary is very interested in good science and bad science. And in his work and his writing, he attempts to get underneath the conclusions and the assumptions that scientists present to figure out not just what are they, but how were they arrived at and what does that mean? Is there another view possible? Is there one that's maybe more accurate? And I think the sum total of that work, of that approach is perhaps um, answers that might contribute to a higher quality of life, answers that will result in us being healthier, living longer longer and having a higher quality of life in the process. So with that, I hope you enjoy this broad-ranging conversation with my new friend, Gary Tobbs. Gary, welcome to the School for Good Living.
0: Uh, Brian, thank you for having me.
1: It's my pleasure. I'm so glad you're here. And Gary, I want to start with my favorite question for Uber drivers, which is, what's life about?
0: Okay, so we're starting with the uh, easy (laughs) question. That's good. Uh, what's life about? I can't just say 43 or whatever the answer Forty, You have 42? Hitchhiker's 42, Guide to the Galaxy? Yeah. yeah. See, I've added one for the <laughs> 21st century. Um, Brian, I don't know what life's about. I mean, trying to make a difference on some level, trying to lead a life that's worthwhile, that's about something more than yourself and um, uh, being challenged. My father once said when I was about 17 he said that it was about setting challenges for yourself and then overcoming those challenges and I said that's ridiculous dad you can just live and in retrospect I think he might have been right.
1: Mm. Your initial kind of response to your dad's answer sounds very eastern though there's a very enlightened I think view in that and you know there's something to be said for setting and achieving setting goals and achieving as well.
0: Yeah. Well, again, when so this you know, seventeen-year-old doesn't have a very informed perspective on the universe. So.
1: Yeah. What was yeah. it? Someone once told me, when I was a teenager, I wasn't always right, but I was never in doubt.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that, I can buy that. I spent a lot of time writing letters to my late father, who passed away in two thousand, and basically apologizing to him for all the things I was never in doubt about when I was younger. And then in retrospect, he was right. <laughs> wow.
1: Did you say that's a practice that you still do or you did for a while?
0: No, I still do because I've had kids late in life. So it's the process of being a parent that mm-hmm. informs you of what parenting really is. And the, or at least gives you the other perspective to the child parent relationship.
1: Yeah. Amazing how our perspective changes. I remember that's a practice that the legendary UCLA coach, John Wooden did, where he would write his wife a letter every Friday and put it lovingly in her space somewhere she would find it. And even after she passed, he kept that practice up. What do you do with those letters now that he's gone?
0: Uh, They're just written in my head. They're not put down on paper, but they are, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things you just don't understand when you're, when you think you know everything. Yeah, for sure.
1: Gary, when someone asks you who you are and what you do, or maybe when you're introduced from a stage, how do you like to answer that question? Purpose and identity. We're just getting the big things. Boom. Right out of the way.
0: (laughs) Well, I immediately think that when we go to cocktail parties, the instructions from my wife, uh, don't tell anyone what you do.
1: Um, (laughs) Why does she say that?
0: Because she doesn't want me to get into a conversation about nutrition and diet and she doesn't, and weight and so... uh, I think of myself as an investigative journalist who is one true expertise in the world is understanding what's called pathological science, which is the science of things that aren't so. That's when science goes awry and researchers discover the wrong things rather than the right things. I'll bet you make a lot of
1: friends doing that.
0: It goes both ways. There are very good scientists in the world who like to see people doing what I'm doing, and there are not-so-good scientists who don't want to be on the receiving end of what I do. It's tricky. Anyways, that's it. And then for the past 20 years, my subject has been nutrition, obesity, and chronic diseases. And I had the misfortune of concluding from my research that the conventional wisdom on all these subjects were profoundly wrong and that the science was inadequate to establish the truth. And so, yeah, now I have significant number of of people out there who think that what I've done is a boon to humanity and they're grateful that I've done it and a significant number of authorities who think that I'm a quack or at best a provocateur and wish I would go away. Mm. You know, I'm
1: reminded as I hear you say that about the idea that the history of Human progress is the history of at least two things. One is admitting our ignorance, or ultimately accepting that we've been mistaken. You know that we're wrong, and whether it was Copernicus or Galileo or so many others, Bruno, that that we could talk about. There's something in what you said also right there that I wanted to I wanted to respond to. But anyway, okay. So this I, I've never heard that term, pathological science. But one thing that that I want to, that I want to ask you about because I want to, and I do want to get to this book, the case for keto rethinking weight control and the science and practice of low carb, high fat eating that keto is one of those things that I've heard about. You know, I know people that I respect and admire, talk about it on podcasts, or I have friends that do it and they tell me how good they feel and how much weight they lose and things like this. But I myself have not ever really delved into it, any kind of particular eating regimen of any kind. So it's not just keto, but As I read your book, I find, I'm like, wow, this is really compelling. You know, this is, and and then I realize there's always two sides, at least two sides, you know, to everything. But, But let me ask you this, with this book, The Case for Keto, why did you write this book? Who did you write it for? And what did you want it to do for them?
0: Well, there's been a controversy for 100, 150 years about the cause of obesity and the Dietary Lifestyle Trigger of Excess Fat, Why We (laughs) Get Fat, which was the title of my second book, and because the conventional wisdom on obesity fails us for the most part, uh, and evidence for that is the fact that obesity and diabetes rates worldwide in the U.S. just keep climbing, regardless of the fact that we've been told for going on 100 years that we get fat because we eat too much, and the solution is to eat less and exercise more, and those seem like they should be simple things to do. And yet people continue to struggle with excess weight, usually endlessly. So I had the advantage, again, as a journalist, I with a hard science background, I started investigating the subject of nutrition as a correspondent for the journal Science in 1998, and then obesity in 2001, first for a New York Times Magazine article, and then Because this happened at a time when the internet had come around, I had access to, in effect, every published study and book on the subject ever written. Suddenly from my office in Manhattan then. So I could do more research in five years than anyone else had ever done. And often breakthroughs in science and understanding happen when a new technology allows you to look in a way that nobody's ever looked. So the conclusion of my work was that as I said, uh, the obesity researchers embraced some assumptions that didn't really make any sense. And they passed them on from generation to generation. And our methods of treating and trying to prevent obesity are based ultimately on those assumptions. And so all of my books have addressed this in different ways. The case for keto is trying to put all this into perspective and as you know, I began arguing these first in a New York Times magazine article then in my first book Good Calories Bad Calories which was published in 2007 and was 500 odd pages long with 120 pages of endnotes and bibliography and,
1: and and that's one thing by the way that has impressed me about your work is that it it is very well researched and substantiated I mean this is not you know we know today anybody can get on the internet and say anything and present themselves as right. an authority. But your work is very well, you know, documented and for what it's worth, I, I appreciate that.
0: Well thank you. I mean in this case when you're challenging the consensus conventionally you can't just say trust me. Right. So and in fact that book at one point was 200 four hundred thousand words long, which is it would be about uh, I don't know, twelve hundred page book.
1: This is good calories, bad calories?
0: Yeah, and unfinished. And I luckily have an amazing editor for whom I'm eternally grateful and I said, can you read this because maybe we could split it into two books.
1: As are your readers, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) Yeah, really. And he did read it and he said, no, it has to be one book and then he helped me cut it down but layers upon layers of of argument and counter-argument and argument and counter-argument and reference and counter-reference and... Anyway, the point is, in the case against keto, I wanted to to put this all into perspective. So, no, the case the case for keto. Case for keto. Thank you. Yeah, the last book was the case against sugar, and I tend to get them. Yeah, yeah. The uh, you know what? At one point, I want, I fantasized that this book was going to be called "In Defense of Fad Diets" because one of the we've had this conflict, again, for 150 years between the conventional thinking on obesity and what are inevitably written off by the medical community as fad diets, from uh, this fellow named Banting in 1865 to Atkins, most famously. And today, South Beach keto is a fad diet. The zone was a fad diet. The protein power was a fad diet. Sugar bust, They're all fad. If they don't agree with the conventional wisdom, they're fad diets. That's how they're written off. And I wanted to put this phenomenon in perspective so that when people were wondering what they can do to lose weight, in which we all of us who are overweight and obese are in effect constantly doing, they would have a book they could go to that could put this 150 years in perspective without having to read my 500-page tome. And it would both give them guidance on how to do what appears to be necessary based on human physiology while simultaneously putting in a kind of historical, logical framework that would help them understand why not just doing a fad diet but maintaining a fad diet for life may be necessary despite everything you hear from the medical dietitians, the obesity community. So that's what that book attempts to do and we'll see if it succeeds.
1: Yeah. That was something, you know, that honestly I hadn't really thought about, but your book had, I mean, that's that's exactly, I think the point you're making is I say I hadn't thought about it, which means it was an unexamined assumption of mine that it is in fact, quote, you know, it's true that the reason people get fat, the reason we have as much obesity and chronic disease you know, that we have is because people just eat too much and they don't exercise enough. Well, that's a simple narrative. And, and of course, you know, this conventional wisdom is often wrong. And if it were that simple, then what that essentially amounts to is this is like a willpower problem or self-discipline problem. And what we're not necessarily looking at is how have our diets changed over, you know, the last hundred, 200 years, how have our lifestyles changed? You know, what's the effect of these things that we're consuming. And when I read this book, it started you know, me to ask myself some questions I'd never even thought of before. Like, you pose this really great question about animals eat until they're satiated. Why don't they get fat? (laughs) You know?
0: Yeah. So, let's tell your audience first. So, that's the fundamental assumption. There's a Newton's laws of obesity. It's that we get fat because we take in more calories than we expend. And what's interesting is the obesity researchers all believe that. You know, when we overeat... There's a lot of technical terms for it. We're in positive energy balance or, you know, gluttony and sloth are the biblical terms. But this is the fundamental law of obesity research. And one of the points I make is that the obesity researchers don't even know where it came from. They actually assume, and I've been interviewing obesity researchers lately for a a piece I hope will run in the New York Times magazine, you could just ask them, do you know where this law comes from? And I've been told by, the you know, they, they, nobody knows. Unless I read my books, nobody knows. And it actually has an origin And that the back pre-1930, roughly, there were competing, high, well, pre-World War II, there were competing hypotheses of obesity. So one was that it's a constitutional hormonal problem. You're basically born with it. Like some people are born predestined to become tall. And some people are born predestined to become fat, and then the environment triggers that predisposition. Um, In which case, it's almost independent of how much people eat. So they can prevent this obesity by starving themselves. But even if they just eat as much as a lean friend eats, they'll get fat anyway. And because of this sort of constitutional predisposition. And this was, came to be seen as an excuse for fat people not to do what thin people do naturally, which is eat to access, I mean, you know, to eat in moderation and exercise. So by the 1920s, you had medical authorities saying that to claim obesity is hormonal was just an excuse, the uh, line I quote in the 1960s from the Mayo Clinic authorities, it's a lame excuse for obese people not to do what thin people do.
1: Yeah, or, as many people think, a moral failing
0: a moral failing. Well, then it gets converted to a moral failing because if they don't do what thin people do effortlessly. And there are a whole series of questions that... So the German-Austrian researchers pre-World War II were doing the best medical science in the world, had concluded that obesity had to be a constitutional defect. And this idea that it's an energy balance disorder, taking in more calories than you expend, was considered naive and nonsensical. Because when you actually work it out, you know, if you let's say you gain 20 pounds every 10 years. So you gain two pounds of fat a year. Mm -hmm. And you go from being lean in your 20s to obese in your 40s, and many of us do. Mm -hmm. What you're doing is you're storing 20 extra calories of fat in your fat tissue every day that your lean friends don't. So your friends who stay lean, they manage to perfectly balance their intake to expenditure perfectly. And those of us who get heavy, like I said, we could gain 40 pounds in 20 years and go from lean to obese. We're just storing 20 calories a day in our fat tissue. So the moral failing is this inability to prevent 20 calories a day from getting trapped in our fat tissue. And on some level, it's, just, it's nonsensical if you start quantifying the size of the effect. Yeah. And the advantage I had, like I said, as a journalist, I could go back to textbooks in the 1920s where researchers did say, hey, you know, when we quantify the size of the effect, this energy balance thing doesn't make any sense. The overeating thing doesn't make any sense. If I'm overeating by 20 calories a day, why can't I fix that? That's a, two bites of food. Right. You know, I mean, it's a. I walk up the stairs twice instead of not at all. I fix this horrible burden of obesity and it's an awful burden yeah. being obese. I mean, it's a physical burden that comes with all kinds of physiological problems from heart disease to diabetes to gout to hypertension. I mean, nobody in an ideal world other than sumo wrestlers would want to be obese and yet What's necessary to fix on the day-to-day level should be trivial if you believe this energy balance idea. So that's what the whole book sort of lays out the fact that there was a history to this idea. It was a researcher named Lewis Newberg in 1929 who began insisting that obesity had to be an energy balance problem, and by post-World War II, he had sort of won out over his competitors. And he'd won out because, not because the science supported him, but because World War II came along and his competitors were mostly, the proponents of the constitutional hypothesis were mostly Germans and Austrians. And that that school evaporated with the war. So post-World War II, everybody just bought into this idea that it's energy balance because that went along with their ideas about gluttony and sloth. And they thought people with obesity just eat too much. We know they eat too much. You go, well, how do you know that? Well, because they're obese, right? So there's a tautological aspect to all this that no one discusses. And in, in this book, I wanted to lay that out and then make the argument, what we learned about the hormonal regulation of fat tissue that by 1965 was pretty clear. And then you end up with, this hypothesis that carbohydrates are fattening because they stimulate the hormone insulin and insulin works to put fat in fat tissue and keep it there.
1: That makes sense to me. I mean, is that not medically like agreed upon? Is that not something that we say that's what's happening?
0: That's quackery. What I just said is considered quackery because the the conventional wisdom is you get fat because you eat too much then a calorie is a calorie. It doesn't matter what you eat. If you eat too much of anything, you'll get fat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like another point you make in your book that was one, again, I'd never thought to ask, but I went, oh my gosh. Yeah. That's such a great question about, you know, if it's true that eating too much or having this caloric overshoot is what leads to obesity, then why do we all know people who are thin as a rail who can eat, you know, way more than it seems a human being should be able to eat and stay thin?
0: Right. Well, that's, you know, one of my relatives when I was younger. Who was very lean? he Used to say, I mean, very lean. Six foot five, couldn't get over 195 pounds if he tried. He was an athlete, so hundred. And he used to say he never got stuffed. He just got bored of eating after a couple of hours. Wow. You know, but if he was obese, he'd have been. You know, he's a glutton, right? And yeah. He's over the technical term for it in the medical literature is hyperphagic. He eats. The enormous amounts of foods, but because he wasn't obese, who actually couldn't gain weight. Then it's just kind of amusing how much he could eat and how much he did eat. Well, and
1: and that's interesting too that you share that because in the book you do talk about a friend you had who was obese who said a similar thing, right? About he, he said would- the
0: opposite. He said this was a young man who has a law degree from an Ivy League university. It was four hundred pounds when he was eighteen. Wow. And I mean, this is a very smart young man. And he told me, he said, you know, he didn't eat any more than his lean friends. I mean, none of them ate well. I mean, they still went to, you know, pizza joints. and But they ate as much as he did. Mm-hmm. But he accumulated 220, 30 pounds of excess fat and they didn't. And then the question is why? I mean that was that's the interesting thing about this. You can ask the question in such a way that you can come up with a completely different hypothesis of obesity very simply. so remember I said you you know every day if you're gaining two pounds of fat a year, that's twenty calories a day that of fat that you're storing in your fat tissue right so as it turns out physiologically you basically store most of the fat you eat. So if you eat a mixed meal of carbs and protein and fat, the fat gets stored pretty much immediately while you burn the carbs. So over the course of a day, you might store about 800 1,000 calories of fat in your fat tissue, and then your fat mobilizes, and then you burn that fat for fuel. So it goes into your fat tissue, and then it comes out again. And then all you have to ask is, well, why would 20 calories a day get stuck in the fat tissue? Why would it be stay there. Mm -hmm. And the first question you'd want to ask if you phrase the question like that is, well, what regulates fat accumulation? What determines why the fat goes in and then the fat comes out such that you might explain why a thousand calories go in, and I apologize for my dog, why a thousand calories might go in and only 980 come out every day. Whereas in my lean friends, a thousand calories comes in and a thousand calories comes out. So if you phrase it like that, then you say what why does twenty calories a day get trapped? Now you start thinking of obesity as a fat trapping disorder instead of a energy balance problem and how much I eat and exercise. And now you start asking questions about what hormones and enzymes and other physiological systems regulate fat accumulation. But but if I can
1: go back to that example for just a moment, I mean, it seems to me anybody who's holding the position that you've just Expressed, you know, the one that you're writing against is well, they would say well that 20 gets stored in there because you haven't expended it You haven't walked up this the stairs twice or something
0: Right, so then you say well, why wouldn't I walk up the stairs another two times? Yeah, you do That's where the fat shaming comes in by the way because it's always the person who's asking that question is always saying Why in effect don't you act like I do I eat in moderation. I keep Mm -hmm. my weight I'm lean, so I know I balance my intake to expenditure perfectly, which means I'm either eating in moderation or I'm exercising to burn off everything I eat. And you're gaining, storing 20 calories of fat every day in your fat tissue. So ultimately you're saying, why is it I can keep my energy in balance and you can't? Right. And if you think that the problem is a intake expenditure problem, then why aren't you eating less or exercising more? Because I'm clearly doing what's right, you're not. And now I'm starting to fat shame because now I've turned a physiological disorder into a a moral failing. Yeah. Either you're too stupid to know what to do or too lazy. You don't care. You're too lazy. There's what other explanation is there? Because I do it. So why don't you? The alternative hypothesis says my body traps fat and yours doesn't. So what you do may not be relevant to what I do because I've got just like if I was growing to be seven feet tall, how much weight and exercise wouldn't enter the equation of why I'm growing to be seven feet tall and you might be only six feet tall or five foot six or whatever. Mm. So Mm. now we're talking about something that's outside of physiological control or to some extent outside physiological control we still know there's a impact of the environment because we know people have been getting more and more obese as time goes by so we still have to identify what the environmental trigger of this problem is
1: yeah so okay you know i'm i so so far based on what i understand and i had i don't have a deep background in nutritional science or this kind of you know health science but again what i said earlier when i read your book it makes sense to me i don't have any reason not to believe it but what i wonder is so it's like say okay let's say that we start from where you are and we say what you're saying is true and we find ourselves in this situation of being overweight maybe being obese or even morbidly obese and now we know so we've we've migrated from this position of well this is i'm just eating too much or not exercising enough or both but now I hear what Gary's saying and I want to subscribe to that. What does that mean for what I do? How does that change my behavior?
0: Right. Okay. So that's, that's the question. How can I fix it? If I can fix it. And that's where when you look at the physiology of fat accumulation. And this was studied beginning in the 1930s by some brilliant scientists. And it continued to be relevant to the, the, the work by the 1960s after the tools were available to really understand what was going on. But as it turns out, the hormone insulin is the dominant hormone regulating fat accumulation. So we think of insulin as a hormone that's absent or uh, not effective enough in diabetes, and we think of it as keeping blood sugar low. But one of the ways it keeps blood sugar low is by keeping fat locked up in the fat tissue.
1: So this is maybe the answer to that question of why don't my cells release that 20 20 calories that it...
0: Yeah, if you keep insulin elevated, when insulin is elevated, your fat is storing fat. That's what it does. So insulin is a sign that carbohydrates have been consumed or protein to some extent, but we could leave that out for now. So you consume carbohydrates that stimulates your pancreas to secrete insulin. Actually thinking about eating carbs stimulates your pancreas to secrete insulin. Did,
1: did Did you say thinking about
0: thinking about just it.
1: Just thinking yeah. about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, it's a Pavlovian phenomenon. So holy cow, know, if we, a thought can activate start,
1: your internal organs like that. Like,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just like it can activate your saliva. That, so start yeah. thinking about what's your favorite food.
1: Anything Mexican just about.
0: Okay. So I don't know. Nachos, you know, nachos. Let's think about a beautiful plate of hot nachos. Anything and, crunchy,
1: and, cheesy, spicy, salty, yeah, and, and you warm. I can
0: feel the sort of. Yeah, you I know, do,
1: I do, right know.
0: And whenever I, with me, it's like hot donuts. The French call them oh. beignets when they oh, come yeah. out, like the New warm, Orleans. Oh you yeah. You know, and anyway, but then, so not only does that stimulate <laughs> insulin saliva, it'll stimulate some insulin secretion because the idea is, the carbohydrates actually hit your bloodstream your circulation quicker than the insulin can go to work so you want to start it's an engineering problem as this was described to me by the university of california san francisco researcher who did a lot of this work in the 1960s you have this engineering problem where you have to basically have the insulin in your bloodstream before the carbs get there for it to do its job adequately so you start secreting insulin just thinking about eating, and then as you start eating, you're secreting more insulin, and then by the time your, the carbs actually hit your bloodstream, you've got plenty of insulin there, and that insulin is telling your fat to store fat, to store the fat that it's holding, not to release it into the bloodstream, so that when the blood sugar's there, the body can concentrate on burning those carbohydrates for fuel. So insulin controls all, that's the dominant controller of both glucose metabolism, carbohydrates, and fat metabolism. And as it turns out, your fat tissue is exquisitely sensitive to insulin. So that's a phrase you would actually, I would, you can see in the journal article studying this process, exquisitely sensitive. So that means if there's a, the tiniest bit of insulin in your circulation, your fat tissue will try to hold on to the fat that it's stored. And so in order to lose fat, your insulin, you have to minimize insulin secretion. And the way you do that with, by diet is by removing the carbohydrates and replacing them with dietary fat. And now you're eating a ketogenic diet. So a ketogenic diet is a diet that sort of minimizes insulin. And when you minimize insulin, you will reduce the fat you've stored. The fat will come out of your fat tissue and you'll burn it for fuel. And this is sort of Relatively simple physiology. And like I said, through the 1960s, you could find researchers proposing that obesity was caused by elevated levels of insulin in the circulation. So, if your insulin's a little bit elevated during the course of the day, that'll work to keep the fat stored in your fat tissue and trap it in your fat tissue, in effect. So, you could imagine this cumulative process of 20 calories a day building up over decades. But the obesity people in general, these were the people who studied fat metabolism. They were different than the obesity people. And the obesity people would say, oh, people get fat because they eat too much. We know why people get fat. And anything else is an excuse.
1: So if I understand what you're saying, that people who studied fat metabolism, that's a different, like that's a different line of research than just obesity.
0: Yeah, so the world divided post-World War II into people who considered them obesity researchers, considered themselves obesity researchers, and they believed Newton's (coughs) law of obesity, that you get fat because you eat too much. Yeah, so ketogenic diet is a diet that minimizes insulin secretion.
1: So why, okay, so when I hear you say this and I hear you talk about that insulin, like fat tissue is exquisitely sensitive to insulin when insulin levels are elevated our, our fat cells in, you know, are holding on to fat, that this is then the mechanics of or the physiology of obesity, not just that it's calories in and out. And that's all setting aside the thing that I think you talk about in good calories, bad calories, is that not all calories are equal.
0: So there's also that. Well, that's the thing. We secrete insulin in response to the carbohydrates we consume, there's some insulin secretion in response to protein. Because the amino acids and protein, some of them get converted into glucose, which then stimulates insulin secretion. Fat doesn't stimulate insulin secretion. So,
1: so why is this a controversial view? Just because it, it's been, well, there's because a history. We know
0: why people get fat. They get fat because they eat too much. Oh, yes. Everything comes back to Newton's laws of obesity or and New the accepted, with, laws the, the
1: established wisdom.
0: Yeah. So, again, what happened in this field. So science is supposed to be self-correcting. We started off talking about we move forward by correcting errors. Yeah. But the problem with science is if you don't correct the error soon enough, it becomes virtually impossible to correct it. Because so many people believe it. It becomes, you know, it's just, and scientists don't like, the the best scientists will discuss this problem. But for the most part, they don't like to because, you know, we we depend on science being self-correcting. Right. But you can move on from the point where it should have been corrected. And then you build layer and layer and layer of science on top of this false assumption. And if you look at the articles on obesity, so for instance, back when this dogma was created that, that obesity is an energy balance problem, eating too much, in effect, that was 1929, 1930 was when it started to set in and there might have been 10 articles written a year on obesity. And there were maybe a dozen researchers in the world who were really doing, thinking about the problem of what caused obesity and publishing on it in the medical literature. And a few of them were very smart, and a few of them were not so smart, and a few of them were critical thinkers, and a few of them were not critical thinkers. And again, I think that the non-critical thinkers won. Today, I'm guessing there's, let's say, 150 articles a week, Published relevant to obesity. So instead of 10 a year, you've got 7,500 a year. And it's hard. Nobody can sift through all that. And all 70, of the 7,500, maybe 7,490 are based on this idea that obesity is an energy balance disorder. That's the fundamental assumption. So even those other 10, which could be written by reasonably good scientists, are not really going to get the attention they deserve. Um, So dogmas, belief systems, perpetuate themselves as the science gets very large. You can change paradigms or belief systems when the science is small. So research when there's a a large signal-to-noise ratio. So if somebody does something interesting that says the paradigm might be wrong, that's going to be noticed by the best people in the field. And they can shift directions. But as the fields get bigger and bigger, there's more and more inertia that goes with the dogma. So the argument I've been making is obesity was basically explained in the 1960s and linked to diet correctly in the 1960s. But the people running the field of obesity were convinced that obesity was an energy balance problem. And then this other phenomena where we started to believe that dietary fat caused heart disease. So on one hand, you've got human physiology arguing that carbohydrates make you fat. And on the other hand, you've got researchers arguing that dietary fat causes heart disease and we should all eat high-carb diets so that we don't get heart disease. And obesity and heart disease are very closely associated. So the ones who are arguing that Dietary fat caused heart disease kind of had to argue that dietary fat causes obesity also because you had to explain the association. So they did that as well. And the idea was that dietary fat is such dense calories that it's easier for us to overeat it because we don't realize how many calories we're consuming when we consume a pat of butter compared to a big green salad. So we fool ourselves. And now we're stuck in this. But wait a minute, we're only fooling ourselves to 20 calories a day why don't we fix it? After a while, we're not going to realize that I'm fooling myself and not eat the pat of butter. And then you continue to get fatter anyway. So there's a lot of vicious cycles kicked in.
1: Yeah. And I I think what you've said too about the inertia and the noise and this kind of thing, and and certainly, you know, health and nutrition is not the only place this happens. I mean, one of the things that I see is this idea in business is still, you know, taught as the Essential imperative for every profit-making enterprise is to maximize shareholder value, you know, established in a very different era when capital was scarce.
0: I have to say, if I knew anything about business or profit, I would not have become a journalist. Okay.
1: I I do want to ask you this too, why you you do this work, but...
0: It's another thing I was going to say that you you don't know any better when you're young and make these decisions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly see you know, a parallel in what you're saying about here's this established line of thinking that's so broadly accepted that it's not disputed. It's only built upon layer upon layer, perhaps of misbelief. And, and, you know, for me, I see parallels, whether it's in economics, you know, and you can look back and I'm certainly not an economic, an economist or an economic historian, but, you know, we can look back at individual thinkers who put forth a, a truth. And then we've just as a society moved that direction or similarly in business where in virtually every business school around the globe, it's, it's not even questioned that the the purpose of business is to maximize shareholder value, you know, not to ensure the social good or elevate the human spirit. But as we see that's changing and, and we are in a time, you know, where, where things are being questioned and, and changed. But I'm, I'm reminded too, and, and clearly this didn't happen with One Funeral, but of, you know, the famous scientific adage attributed to Max Planck about science advances one funeral at a time.
0: Right, right. And it does, but those people who are dying off are teaching younger generations what they believe. And not only are they teaching younger generations what they believe, they're teaching younger generations how they think science should be done. Hmm. And so, there's a, there's a possibility that in some field scientific progress has been derailed in a way that is going to be very hard to bring it back on the rails. I mean, this is so sensitive subject. You're in Utah. Mm-hmm. And my second book ever was on cold fusion.
1: Yeah, that's right. That work okay.
0: here at the University that's of Utah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And at Brigham Young University. And I spent three years on this. I get obsessed. Um... And you could imagine a scenario in which the entire world of science was Utah, so you didn't have all these other scientists responding to the cold fusion announcement by trying to see if it was correct and setting up their own experiments because it was inexpensive, relatively inexpensive to try and replicate these experiments. A lot of people did, and some very good scientists did, and they said, wait, this can't be replicated. And not only can it not be replicated, we can see what mistakes the Utah chemists had made. And so over the course of three months, you saw science self-correct. So there's a claim of a great discovery. We run these currents through this beaker of heavy water with palladium electrode, and we get cold nuclear fusion, and it's the wealth of OPEC that we've got in our laboratory. And then the scientific method kicks into action, and it very quickly gets refuted. If those other people didn't exist... You could imagine a scenario where the cold fusion research becomes sort of the norm. It's accepted that it's correct, and the people are considered good scientists are the ones who get the right answer, which is that it's correct. And they build into their scientific process certain flaws in the scientific method and even doing the experiments that are considered the norm because what you have to do to get the right answer. And then 50 years later, you have a world of research, a scientific community, all trained and based on this idea that cold fusion is real and that you have to do sloppy experiments to get the right answer and you don't need to do rigorous controls and you don't need to understand your background and all the things that good scientists think about all the time. And then somebody comes along and says, no, wait, wait, wait. cold fusion isn't real. And they're the quack, because everybody in the community believes the same thing, and they get a great deal of respect because they believe, and they respect, you know, the idea of groupthink is that you tend to respect people who agree with you. You think they're the smart ones because they agree with me. And so you surround yourself with people who think just like you do, and you get positive reinforcement from the people who think like you do. And when you have to put on committees to, you know, review the state of the science, you the committees are all staffed by people who think exactly like you do. And so if there are uh, assumptions built into the dogma that are wrong or have never been tested, they continue to get passed on to future generations because everybody involved in creating that dogma thinks exactly a lot. It's a, the more you think about this, the, more pessimistic it can become. And yet simultaneously we've clearly made great progress in science.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like you pointed out that, you know, that situation here with cold fusion was, you know, science functioned as we hope it would that others, you know, tested and, and shared what they knew. And it's kind of like Wikipedia that I, you know, I've seen attempts to kind of game Wikipedia, putting facts in there that are clearly not true. Like I think there was that famous one about an elephant only has three legs and Sure enough, the group, you know, that uh, crowd, editorial, you know, corrected. But I'm on a little bit, little bit of a tangent. I, I want, I want to pace us. I'm gonna shift a little bit. I want to pace us here because I still have, I've got a few questions that uh, I want to be sure to ask before we, before we leave this section. But one of them is this. One of them is, why have you devoted your life or so much of your life to this work? Why did you get into it? Why have you stayed on it?
0: Okay, I went into journalism because, well, first of all, I would have been a lousy physicist. I had a physics degree in college. I got a C minus in quantum physics my junior year, and my advisor kindly suggested I find another career. I read all the president's men, you know, the uh, Woodward Bernstein book about Watergate, Nixon and Watergate, yep. and I had been a reader of private detective fiction, you know, uh, Raymond Chandler and uh, Dash Hammett. And I watched Humphrey Bogart movies where he played, you know, Sam Spade or Philip Marlowe. And uh, then I read All the President's Men and decided I wanted to be an investigative journalist. So I got into Columbia Journalism School because it was a time, even though I hadn't worked for any newspapers or school papers, it was a time when science writing was seen as the future of science. And I had you know, science degrees from Harvard and Stanford, so it looked like I knew what I was doing or that I was smarter than I am. And uh, coming out of Columbia, I wanted to be an investigative journalist, but I couldn't get any real jobs, so I went into... I took a job at Discover Magazine in New York writing about science, and a few years in, it became clear that there was some terrible science out there, and that's you didn't need a PhD in the subject to ask would seem like obvious critical questions of the researchers and maybe clarify some of the problems. So like any occupation, plumbing, road building, you know, pick it there. People do it well and people do it poorly and the same is true of science. Uh, In general, they might be more intelligent than others, although every time the plumber came to my house when I was a kid, my father had a PhD after he paid the bill says he should have gone into plumbing. Um, Anyway, so that was it. Uh, there, there's good science and bad science. My first book, I went to live in Geneva at this physics laboratory called CERN outside of Geneva, Switzerland. And I thought I was going to chronicle the a great discovery being made. And instead, it turned out that the scientists had screwed up the physicists. They'd made mistakes and they had... I spent ten months. Today we would say I was embedded with the physicists, and I watched them realize over the course of ten months that they had made a mistake and Is, embarrassed themselves. Was this and, with the
1: the hadron super collider?
0: Uh, yeah. At the time, it was it was the two generations of particle accelerator prior to the to the Large Hadron Collider. So they've uh-huh. had one other. Collider there at the time it was state of the art. This was 1984, 85, hmm. and I was thought I was going to, like I said, chronicling this great discovery. And um, it's funny I just got I got panned in the New York Times by the New York Times reviewer Christopher Lehman Hout, who clearly didn't like my attitude. You could imagine him writing this pan while he looked at the book picture and smacking me. You know <laughs> the. Uh, my photo. Um, But from my perspective, I I thought I was going to go out and write about this great discovery. And instead, I found myself in this sort of political quagmire with this Machiavellian, brilliant group leader who had made more mistakes than he had ever done right. And I had to write what I saw. And I became obsessed with this question of how hard it is to do science right and how easy it is to get the wrong answer. So when that book came out, I... Whenever I had the opportunity to do an investigation into some controversial science, I mean, often researchers, I would be telling people, the physicist I was writing about, the head of the experiment was a guy named Carlo Rubia, who won the Nobel Prize while I was there for earlier work that was mostly wrong. I went to Stockholm with him, something I'm sure he still regrets to this day. I would tell people I would talk about Ruby and they'd say, oh, you think Ruby was bad? You should write about so-and-so. In every field of science, there was some sort of hyper-ambitious researcher who cut just enough corners to keep ahead, never actually committing fraud, but committing a kind of scientific malpractice, not misconduct, but malpractice where he's getting newsworthy results that are wrong. But using those newsworthy results to get funding, to do future work, and sort of accumulate prizes and awards. So whenever people told me about those researchers, I was always, that's, I was, you know, now I got to do investigative science writing. Remember, I wanted to be an investigative journalist. So I just kept at it. And then in the late 90s, I stumbled into nutrition. And the nutrition science turned out not just to be terrible, but... There was a real human cost to it. So now, how do you get out? Once you've decided that the conventional wisdom's wrong and that people are getting harmed every day because they're not just following the conventional wisdom, they believe its implications. Yeah. So if you, the implication is obesity is a moral failure and you're obese, there are people out there who are burdened every day by their belief that they've failed themselves, that it's their fault. mm mm-hmm and so now it just gets hard to walk away and i don't see i envy the people who can do it but i haven't been able to so on some level this then becomes a cause and then you know a journalist with the cause is no longer perceived as an unbiased journalist so then then you get into other tricky aspects of this work
1: yeah that was something that struck me in the intro of your book where you make the statement we believe talking about those of those of us who you know particularly the physicians and dietitians on the front line believe that the advice we get from our public health nutritional and medical authorities is simply wrong that we believe an injustice is being perpetrated that has to be righted so i definitely had that sense of of mission or cause and then and then you say my goal is to help each of us shed a century of tragic preconceptions about the nature of a healthy diet to learn to ignore the bad advice we have been given and to replace it with a way of thinking about diets our weight and our health that works that really resonates with me because i, I may, maybe i'm a contrarian in some ways but i do I, i've always loved the the saying attributed to mark twain about when you find yourself on the side of the majority it's time to reform <laughs> you know not to be a contrarian just to be a contrarian but i am struck by how often the conventional thinking Either it's flat out wrong or at least there's more to it, you know, and and you're you're presenting that.
0: You know, as a journalist, I'm always trying to make statements that are factually correct. And the way journalists can do that is you use a lot of caveats. So, by saying we believe this, that's true. That is a factually correct statement. We believe this. And in fact, I'm always writing to my critics, because my critics are often saying, well, Taub says this is true. And then I go, no, 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 look what I said. I said, we believe this is true. That's factually correct. Whether it is or not is going to be up to other people to decide. But this is our position. That's when I told you I wrote this book in part to put all of this into perspective. And it's 100 years of, I mean, it sounds hubristic and arrogant, and I, I get it, but there have been some horrible mistakes made in this field, and like I said, we're just you know the the assumption with these increasing levels of obesity and diabetes is that I mean the 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 medical the recent the relevant research community will go through all kinds of rhetorical contortions to try and explain it without blaming people for being obese and diabetic. But if you believe that obesity is caused by this energy balance imbalance, then one way or the other, it's the fault of the obese and the diabetic individual for getting that. There's no, they'll they'll blame it on the food system. So there's a book, you know, the idea of what's called sugar, fat, salt by a new Pulitzer prize-winning New York Times writer, Michael Moss. And the idea is the food system, the food industry works so hard to make these foods so blissful. He talks about the bliss point that you just can't say no. But the assumption is clearly thin people can say no because they don't overeat it. So you can blame it on the food industry, but it's still those of us who get fat who are the ones who have failed, who they've won out over, and we can't say no. But the thin people can. There's no way to escape the moral implications of this energy balance idea, and as long as we have, and the researchers can't do their job correctly because it's like everything they do, they. They set up their, from setting up their experiments to interpreting their experiments, they do on this belief system that people get fat because they eat too much. Yeah.
1: That, that makes sense to me that if all of that work is occurring inside a paradigm, you're not going to escape the paradigm. You're not <laughs> going to escape you're it. You're just going to exactly.
0: validate it. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. When I was writing about cold fusion, one of my lessons that I took away from science journalists was for young science journalists. And I would often give talks to journalism schools. And I'd say, you know, if anyone ever evokes uh, Galileo as a personal role model, assume they're a quack until remarkable evidence uh, argues <laughs> otherwise. And then I'd be writing about this. And the people are interviewing me. And they'd say, well, what? Give me another example where the paradigm was so incorrect that. And you go, well, I, I mean, it's kind of like if you thought that the sun rotated around the earth. <laughs> I mean, you look out the window, it clearly rotates around the earth. I mean, it's an easy mistake to make, and you could imagine how all... And now I'm using, even though I'm not saying it, I'm evoking Galileo as some kind of role model, and it's like, I can't go there, right? <laughs> and that's one of the problems with this kind of claim is that I was talking to a journalist yesterday who was doing an article for Wired, and I s- This is where it gets tricky because simultaneously I'm writing an article for the I am a journalist writing an article for the New York Times Magazine on this overeating ideas where it comes from why it's clearly wrong how tautological it is and I sent him the draft and I I want his comments because he's a good journalist and I trust his judgments and I but I also said you know I can't possibly be right it can't be this simple. You know, and you can't be the only person in the world who... Th- and there's not... I'm not the only one, but there's... In the research community, there's maybe five people who haven't read my work who think like I do because they've come to the same conclusions. And oh, you know, clearly I've got to be a quack, right? I mean, it's just there's no way to avoid it. People like, you know... And yet, the logic seems kind of indisputable. And this this guy doesn't want to take a side... And I kept saying, but look, obesity, it's the overeating hypothesis, it's either a tautology or an, it's not. You don't need experiments. You know, the, the metaphor I use is imagine if we were talking about wealth, like you and I were, I'd probably say this in the book, you know, we were, you were doing a podcast and I was an authority on wealth accumulation and I was helping your, your listeners come to understand how to get as, Wealthy as possible while simultaneously, you know, putting that wealth to work for humanity. And you said, well, how do people get wealthy? And I said, well, they have to make more money than they spend. And that was it. And then I'd look at you and you'd say, well, that's absurd. Of course, they have to make much more money than they spend, right? That's the definition of accumulating wealth. You haven't given me an explanation. And obesity, if I tell you they got fat because they take in more energy than they expend. It's like that's the answer. That's Newton's law. It's not helpful. It just explains nothing. It is literally tautological and yet that's been the dogma for going on 100 years. Well, since World War II.
1: Well, I know we I know we've been talking about this for an hour already. But what I something I feel like I'm not yet clear on and maybe it's so simple that there's nothing more to grasp, but I think okay, so if I'm I'm following what you're saying that you know this obesity, you know, hypothesis is not accurate. And what you're saying about insulin is in fact, why we get fat. And then I go, okay, so is the answer as simple as cutting out these simple sugars, these carbs, these things that elevate our insulin. And then we live avoiding all those foods that are so cheap and delicious and easily accessible that some of which I would miss dearly, but in the name of being healthy, healthy, not just thin, but healthy, and have longevity and quality of life, I would, I think I would do that. Is that it? I mean, is that, is it really that simple? Did I just go, I just cut out all that stuff that these big food companies are trying to push on me and boom.
0: Well, like, it's okay. On one level, it is that simple, but then I'm going to complicate it instantly. So first of all, you have to replace those calories with something. Right. Because otherwise, if you just cut out the crap, you're going to be hungry because a sad. lot of de-
1: well, I would, you, you I would be over,
0: sad. <laughs> you get over the sadness. Look, I my advantage in writing about this stuff is I used to be. I have a caffeine addiction. That's clear. Um, and I had a nicotine addiction. And when you're a smoker, you can't imagine life without cigarettes. I mean, the negative feedback tends to be worse than the negative feedback of the crap you eat because your breath is terrible, your mouth feels awful when you wake up in the mornings. You might have a, I used to wake up at three in the morning coughing. I sounded like my father, which I didn't want to do at 40.
1: Yeah, I used to, um, I used to smoke too.
0: Yeah, so you know, that's, that's the thing. There was a period in which you couldn't imagine not being a smoker, much as you wanted to not be a smoker. I mean, someday I would like to go back and live in Paris, where I had the fortune of living in my, when I was writing my first book. And I can't imagine sitting at French cafes and not going back to smoking cigarettes. I miss cigarettes more than I miss bread. And I quit 20 years ago. You know, I miss cigarettes more than I miss ice cream. I mean, if I talk about it enough and often I think about it, and if I was, we went out to dinner and my wife ordered dessert and I didn't because I'm always trying to be virtuous, I'm going to crave that dessert. And now I'm going to start sort of missing it in a sense because it's, it's there. Whereas if my wife were to smoke a cigarette, I would probably be slightly nauseated. You know, so there are different phenomena going on, but you get over it, in effect, like any addiction, you learn. But that's the point is you, one of the problems with these diets, remember I said carbohydrates stimulate insulin secretion, fat doesn't. So a ketogenic diet replaces the carbs with fat. Doesn't? It's not a high-protein diet, because a high-protein protein also can stimulate insulin secretion. It's a high-fat diet. And so since the 1960s, we've been taught that dietary fat will kill us and make us fat. But the idea is saturated fat, fat from animal products in particular, is going to cause heart disease and other chronic diseases. So that's another aspect of the conventional wisdom. And that is accurate, though, isn't it? No. Saturated fat causes heart disease. I
1: thought that was just as sure as, you know, (laughs) it's not so.
0: No. You're blowing my mind, man. Well, this is how I, st- I, remember I said I sort of stumbled into nutrition. First article I did was on this controversy, I bit, salt causing hypertension. Is, is so this I, the what
1: if, what if it's all been a big fat lie? Is that this article you're No, No,
0: well, that was, that was the first sort of obesity article. Before that, I did two investigations. Again, I was a correspondent for the journal Science, and I spent nine months on one magazine article about whether salt causes high blood pressure. I stumbled. I didn't realize there was a controversy over this, which there was, and there still is. It was a conventional wisdom. I ate a low-salt diet like everyone else did in the 90s. But it turns out that there are people who think the science is terrible. So this was interesting to me because I was interested in good and bad science. So I spent nine months. I interviewed 85 researchers and administrators for one magazine article. I mean, these are crazy numbers, by the way. The it's, the science was terrible. It was just, there was an interesting hypothesis that was put forth in the 1960s, and every time they tried to test the hypothesis, they failed. It failed. So, while I was doing that story, one of the worst scientists I'd ever interviewed, and I thought, you know, the Cold Fusion book was called Bad Science. I thought I had interviewed the worst scientist in the world when I was doing that, because something like Cold Fusion attracts the worst scientists to it. The president of the University of Utah at the time, Chase Peterson, it was his metaphor, like flies to shit. <laughs> and I apologize, Chase, I didn't put that in the book, and he's now passed on. So one of the worst scientists I ever interviewed took credit for getting Americans not just to eat less salt, but putting us on this low-fat diet we were all eating. And I literally got off the phone with this guy, and I called up my editor at Science. I said, when I'm done writing about salt, I'm going to write about fat, because if this guy was involved in any substantive way, there's really got to be a good story there. I had no idea what it was. So I spent a year on the dietary fat story. I funded it by, like, freelancing. I used to write speeches and press releases for IBM in my spare time, and that would help fund, you know, like, my pro bono work. which was a fat story. And I interviewed about 140 people for that story. Again, researchers. And when I say administer, administrators at the USDA or the National Institutes of Health or congressional staffers who were involved in this, and the science is just terrible. It's just really, they, again, it was an interesting hypothesis, and they did a series of randomized controlled trials, experiments in effect to test the hypothesis, and they just failed to confirm it. But the problem in this field is once people start to believe something, they can't get off it.
1: That sounds very human. That's very normal for human beings. It is
0: very human. Well, at one point in this process around 2000, I said, this is crazy. Whatever's happening to me is crazy because if I understand how to do science, the scientists that I'm quote, scientists that I'm writing about don't. And I went back and I read, started reading philosophy of science books going all the way back to Francis Bacon. So, In 1620, 400 years ago this year, Francis Bacon published a book called Novum Organum, which Latin for sort of new technology of reasoning. And it was the sort of initiation of the scientific method. It's not enough to just believe what authority figures tell us, and it's not enough to just believe what we think is true. We have to test it experimentally. And everything Bacon talked about 400 years ago was the same stuff people who study cognitive, you know, um, errors talk about today. We believe what we want to believe. We see in the data what we want to see in the data. You know, we select out the evidence that agrees with us while we might ignore a greater amount of evidence that disagrees. And everything he was talking about in 1620 was what I was documenting In the dietary fat story so no saturated fat um as far as i can tell does not it's not the reason why we have heart attacks and then the reason would be the refined sugars and grains in our diet
1: yeah and again to me when when i look at what's happened in our society this incredible incidence of these diseases cancer cardiac disease obesity uh you know diabetes these all these things (laughs) and and how that has been coincidental with the change in what we eat. That's that's not hard for me to accept, you know, at least the possibility of what you're saying.
0: For, right, but again, sure. everyone looks at it. So if you believe the conventional wisdom, you look at how the diets and lifestyles have changed in 100, 120 years, since say 1900, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and you say, well, we consume more saturated fat and we consume fewer carbohydrates, which is true. There's and we're less physically active right because we don't we have all these labor saving devices we're not out in the fields you know we're not yeah, most of us are knowledge workers work. yeah exactly so yeah. we're sedentary we eat more there's more food available and the food we eat there's more fat in it and fewer carbs so therefore you know we get fat cuz we eat more and can expand less and we get heart disease because there's more dietary fat less carbs. That was the basic observation of the low-fat movement. The flip side is you say, well, yeah, we eat less carbs, but the carbs we eat are more highly refined. So you go from eating relatively, un, you know, stone ground flour and relatively unrefined bread to white bread. And you dump a whole lot of sugar into the diet. So even yeah. though in quantity we eat less carbs than we did in 1900, those carbs are now predominantly white flour and sugar and They're liquid processed. sugar. Yeah. yeah, And in the 1960s, you know, we just transformed like kids in particular. Children's diets in the 1960s became dessert. You know, sugary cereals, juices, fruity yogurts, You know, you look at what we feed kids and it's what earlier, for breakfast, earlier generations considered dessert. And a treat and something you would have once a week. So the alternative hypothesis, it's got nothing to do with the fat and the saturated fat. It's all the sugar and refined carbs. And then you look at things like, you know, obesity and diabetes and they're insulin related and insulin is stimulated in response to the carbohydrate content of the diet. There's evidence that, Sugar itself might cause a condition called insulin resistance. So there's a whole series of observations that feed into what I've been arguing, and others. Whereas the conventional wisdom was basically based on, "Hey, look, we're having you know a lot of heart attacks in the United States, and when I look at the USDA data from 1900, we're eating less carbs and more fat. It must be the fat." And then there's a LDL cholesterol story and statins and the drug industry gets involved and you know oh, yeah. but the science yeah, it... is just terrible that's all like yeah. that's the one thing I know better I I have studied as much or more than any human being in the world as this concept of pathological science the science of things that aren't so as it was originally defined mm. and nutrition does pathological science as well or as poorly as any field in the world
1: you you say pathological science is the science of things that aren't so?
0: Yeah, that was a definition. It was a term coined by a chemist named Irving Langmuir, Nobel laureate chemist. He gave a famous lecture on path, famous in the science community, lecture on pathological science at IBM, coincidentally, in like 1953, I think it was. And then uh-huh. I first heard about this lecture during the cold fusion period because the Cold fusion was an example of pathological science.
1: Well, Gary, I'm I'm not doing an effective job of pacing us, but I'm definitely enjoying our conversation. I just want to acknowledge that I do I want to ask, I just want I want to ask one more question and share one more thing in this section. It's actually two questions, because one is if, if if there's anything more you feel and anything more you feel is worth saying, not that we can't come back, but on anything we've talked about or haven't to this point, but but before I go there, I just want to, I want to ask you this, you make this point, like, I wonder how much of this is, I don't know if it's a branding issue, a messaging, you know, because you make the point that this term LCHA L- I can barely even pronounce L-C-H-F. it LCHF, low carb, high fat LCHF slash keto. Like that's not a sexy, you know, there's nothing there that is memorable or catchy per se. And I, I think that it maybe like climate change or global warming. Where the, what the word, the words we use have a lot to do with how we perceive it, how we think about it, and so it's easy, I think, for people to be climate deniers when they're saying, "Well, yeah, climate change has always happened. That's not It's not a thing we should worry about or take action on." And I wonder how much of this, of everything you're saying, that's being ignored or actively, you know, resisted, is because of what we're calling it. What, what, what do you think about that?
0: Well, I think it's on some level that's always true. So in science, in good science, it's considered vi- it's vitally important to be specific in your language and your definition of terms, because <laughs> you, can, you can build assumptions into the terms you use to describe a problem. And then people who embrace those, uh, those terminology will embrace the assumptions with it without even knowing it right so you want to minimize the assumptions that's always one of the goals and so i mean there's some things you just can't get rid of but in an ideal world everything is tested nothing is assumed and the in just for the low carb high fat slash ketogenic the way i you know the book is called the case for keto but one of the things i did for the book is i interviewed uh, about 120 odd physicians who have converted to this way of thinking and so they eat low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diets themselves, and they prescribe those diets to their patients. And it's ultimately, as I say in the book, it's about you know this idea that carbohydrates are fattening. So for those of us who put on weight easily, who fatten easily, it's the carbohydrates in the diet that do it. They're not fattening to everyone, because clearly the world is full of thin people who can eat these foods with impunity. Mm-hmm. But for those of us who get fat, the argument is carbohydrates are the problem, so we can't eat them. And then we have to replace them with fat and now we're eating, we may or may not be eating a ketogenic diet. This is part of the confusion. The physicians who prescribe these diets to their patients, they want to get their patients off the crap carbohydrates, Mm -hmm. you know? That's the first thing. So if I can get them off the crap breakfast cereals and the juices and the high-carb snacks and the white bread and, you know, ideally bread in general, I'll make them healthier. You know, they'll be healthier, they'll live longer, they'll feel better. That's step one. And if I can get them to replace it with fat and lower the carbs enough, they'll lose weight. And we don't know how much that has to be because it's different for everyone. So I'm just trying to, you know, even though the book is called The Case for Keto, which is as much a the ad people at the publisher as my choice. Um, it's really about this idea that carbohydrates are fattening. And that if you're put on fat easily, you shouldn't and you don't want to put on fat, then you shouldn't eat them. Then they're the thing you avoid in the diet, that's all. So by using both terms, low-carb, high-fat, slash, keto, ketogenic, I'm embracing the whole concept so people know. If I just call it a ketogenic diet, well, often these diets are not actually. There's a there's a definition of what a ketogenic diet is, which is that you're generating a significant number of ketones from your liver and you might not be doing that, but you might still be on a low-carb, high-fat diet. So, but always in science, in any writing, you should be specific in your terminology, and I go and I've seen so much damage done in this field by people who aren't. Uh, so much, you know, beliefs are carried along by terminology. Yeah. And you see it when you study the history, you see how it happens. It's just the lazy use of terminology. Allow people to continue believing things that aren't necessarily true, and all you have to do is to find your terms more clearly and precisely, and that won't happen.
1: Yeah, that that's powerful, and I love the succinct way that you talk about that, where assumptions get embedded into terminology. You know, yeah, that that, that makes sense to me. And something I know I said this in my letter when I when I invited you to this interview is just that you know my dad who passed away at 64 years old, with a long list of health ailments, including diabetes, that was severe enough that he had his legs amputated below the knees before he before he died. You know, I just want to share that I really do think what you're doing, the work you're doing is so important because I know there's a lot of people suffering and they're doing the best they can, you know, looking to authorities that they trust for information that clearly is not serving them. and. You know, I'm interested in who is saying something, not just new and different, but something that will actually lead to a higher quality of life for people. And as, as far as I can tell, what you're, what you're writing about and the ideas you're promoting, they're doing that. So well, thank
0: you. you know. I mean, that's the goal of the book. You know, I, I say in the beginning of the book, I'm writing it as for people who are, you know, overweight, obese, who have metabolic diseases like diabetes or prediabetes, but also for their physicians. The conventional wisdom in medicine is, you know, here: the doctors are taught to trust the authority figures. And if the authority figures are saying this is quackery, that's what they believe. Yeah. And if they think that people are going to die doing these diets, that's what they believe. Despite, you know, 100, roughly 100 clinical trials arguing that they're the, possibly the healthiest way most of us can eat. And so what I'm trying to do is open minds to the point that physicians will want to learn more about it and will want to experiment, you know. Feel free to let their patients experiment with these diets and help them rather than talk them out of it. And this is happening anyway. Yeah. But what's interesting, and we didn't talk about the flip side, is there's a very powerful vegan-vegetarian movement in this country. And they, so I, you know, we're blaming the chronic diseases that are so prevalent in our societies on refined grains and sugars for the most part. And some of the people I my allies think vegetable oils are to blame as well. And and then there's a vegan vegetarian movement that says the problem is animal products. So the easiest way to eat a ketogenic diet, a low carb, high fat diet is to eat a lot of animal products because they tend to be combinations of protein and fat. They don't have carbs involved. It's, it can be done with a vegetarian, even a vegan diet, and there are a lot of people doing it, but it's a lot more difficult.
1: Yeah, I am I stopped eating meat completely a few years ago, so I'm in yeah. this camp, not vegan, but vegetarian.
0: Right. So
1: this is where I lean in, especially hearing you know, what you're saying, going, okay, now if I really adopted this keto, you know, LCHF, keto approach as a vegetarian, then what? You know, yeah, cuz no, it's already it, it can
0: be done. It yeah. can be done. You you it's a lot more difficult. It's easier as a vegetarian or a lacto ovo vegetarian yeah. or a pescatarian. Um yeah. as a vegan, it can there's a Facebook group with I think fifty thousand members who are vegans on ketogenic diets. One of the physicians I interviewed for the book who was sort of my back doctor in absentia. She's in Ohio, and when I have back problems, which I was an athlete my whole life, I often do. It. She's the first one I go to, and she's a, a vegan on a ketogenic diet. But she says she's, it's not about religion for her. She just doesn't feel good when she eats animal products. She can't yeah. seem to tolerate them. But that's the sort of, there It's though these two growing movements. are the people doing keto who you know, most of them, I mean, some of them are young kids who think it'll enhance their athletic performance and maybe it will. And some want to live forever and maybe, it'll you know, help them live longer. But most of them are people who just, you know, we can maintain a healthy weight. Like I can maintain a healthy weight and appear to be very healthy if I, if I eat this way. And then on the other hand, there's, a, like I said, a vegetarian-vegan movement that's arguing something very different. Yeah. And yeah. With uh, a sort of ethical, moral position and an environmental position tied into it that gives it power. Yeah. You know, what worries me, It's like I was, one of my oldest friends called me the other day. He became a vegan about a week ago, and he wants to talk about it. <laughs> uh, and we all have too much time on our hands now, right? Because we're trapped yeah. at home. And I, I don't, but I will but i worry that people who would benefit who would be healthier eating a animal product based diet that's very low in carbs because you know vegetables are uh, plants are the most of the calories are coming from carbohydrates one way or the other so they're slower they're bound up with fiber if you're eating a healthy vegetarian or vegan diet
1: but they're still carbs
0: but they're still carbs so people I think that's a healthy diet for people, but it wouldn't reverse their metabolic diseases whereas a, you know, a low-carb, high-fat ketogenic diet would yeah. and would be healthier. And so there's a lot of mixed messages and there's a sort of conflict between these two schools because if we're right, they're wrong. Not that yeah. it can't be a healthy diet, but the fundamental beliefs on which the diet is based could be wrong. Yeah. And if they're right, then we're wrong.
1: Yeah and I mean, then in the mix of all of this not you know this this preponderance of of data and information yeah. is then the individuality of every one of our bodies which I'm yeah. certainly not an expert on but I've seen enough of the eat right for your type and the different blood type diets and all this kind of thing it's like holy cow in some ways this does seem very complex.
0: Yeah although there's a way to simplify it so my previous book before the case for keto was the case against sugar publishers like these themes the way i put it in that book so you you have an observation you want to explain like a crime that's been committed mm-hmm. and in this case the observations last crime is the appearance of these what are called western diseases in every population in the world that transitions from eating its traditional diet to a western diet and lifestyle So Native Americans of the Great Plains or the Southwest of the United States or the Utes of Utah or um, the Inuits and the First Nations people and Southeast Asians and South Pacific Islanders and African tribal populations. They go from whatever they were eating and you give them Western diets and you see obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, arthritis, gout you name it, explode in the populations, hypertension. And this is a has been a observation since the late nineteenth century. It's documented in different medical specialties, like in you know people studying hypertension, nephrologists, as soon as they have a tool to, you know, measure blood pressure, they're off measuring blood pressure in, you know, Middle Eastern tribal populations in the nineteen twenties and saying their blood pressure is lower if they're still nomads than it is if they've settled in, you know, a local city and are eating Western foods. So then the question is, what is it about these Western diets and lifestyles trigger this manifestation of obesity and diabetes and heart disease? And that's a different question. So now everybody's different in the population, but add a Western diet to everybody and you get obesity diabetes and heart disease so is it different for everyone like you know you're triggered by the animal products and i'm triggered by the coca-colas and she's triggered by the soy oil or is it the same thing for all of us yeah and then
1: there's some you know, some things that do.
0: razor is yeah. so and that's why like i said on one level some people will say well it's the red meat right and i'll say well wait a minute but you have like the the Native Americans of the Great Plains lived on buffalo, you know, put them yeah. in a reservation, feed them Western foods. Can't be the red meat because they were eating red meat when they didn't have these diseases. Yeah. Got to be something else. And the something else, you know, the prime suspects were white flour and sugar. Add white flour and sugar to any population's diet and eventually you'll get... Obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, arthritis, and they're all linked to what's called insulin resistance, which is the fundamental defect in diabetes, and I would argue on some level the fundamental defect in obesity. And so there's a story that's a a compelling story. The conventional wisdom, by the way, is they become sedentary and they eat too much, and then the meat causes gout, and the fat causes heart disease, and the salt causes hypertension. Yeah.
1: And well and the thing that's so d- maybe difficult to tease out on this is I think it probably is also true that they're sedentary and eat too much.
0: But well, it's, <laughs> it's also true that they're sedentary and eat on average more. Right. But there's also this observation, breaks my heart, I can't get this into the New York Times magazine story, but maybe I'll be able to in the next draft. This is if they run it. By the time this comes out they may have killed it. The dual burden of obesity and malnutrition. So, this is obesity and malnutrition and undernutrition existing in the same populations, in the same families, even simultaneously.
1: In the same individuals?
0: Well, or just in the same family. Arguably in the same individuals. What it means is you'll have mothers, for instance, who are obese with children who are clearly starving and mm. undernutrition, their growth is stunted. So they're not just that they're not getting enough protein, enough necessary vitamins and minerals, they're not getting enough calories, mm. and yet their mothers are obese. Mm. So this is now a major health problem all over the world. Basically, you know, a lower economic status populations all over the world suffer this dual burden. I, when I went looking for in the research to my book, I could Find it documented as early as 1902 in the Mm. Pima, the Native American tribe called the Pima, and then again in 1928 in the Sioux tribe. These populations are poor beyond our imagination. I mean, literally beyond. We could not imagine the poverty. In the case of the Sioux in 1928, there was a government report in 1928 that said that back then, people would not be able to imagine the poverty on this reservation. And yet, 25% of the mothers were obese. So how do you define, what does it mean to overeat in a population that's so poor that the kids are starving? Mm. And if you believe that obesity is an energy balance problem, you just, well, the mothers did overeat. How do you know that? Because they're fat. They had overeat. End of story. We don't have to define, describe anything else. Then you say, but the kids are starving. Why didn't they give some of the superfluous food to the kids? Right? Yeah. That's what I would do. I'd like to think that's what I would do. Yeah. Yeah. If my children were starving and I was eating Snickers bars, give it to the kids. Anyway, so that's a kind of paradox that you have in this field that that tends to be ignored.
1: Well, and globally, you know, I've I've seen that on a global scale about how remarkable it is that there are still famines that occur. Although Yuval Noah Harari pointed out that. Any one of those that occur now are politically motivated, which was interesting. But the fact that we live on a planet where people do lack nutrition or access to some of these basic right. things, water sanitation, while so much of the developed world lives with all of these preventable, maybe lifestyle diseases. Right. And the paradox of that, that not quite 50-50, but half the world is dying of you know, these the obesity and other related ailments. And then half is starving. And it's like, right. that is amazing.
0: Yeah. And again, you can find, and that's the point, you can go into these populations. My favorite example was um, Western Saharan refugees, or Saharan refugees living in uh, refugee camps in Algeria in the Sahara Desert. So they were chased out of this population. That there was a revolution in their country. They're chased out, and I think it was the 1970s. And for 30 years, they've been living in these refugee camps in Well, when the study was done, it was 35 years, refugee camps Mm -hmm. in the Sahara Desert. And all the food has to be shipped in, you know, by health organizations, basically in trucks over the desert because you can't grow anything. Mm -hmm. And so the kids are clearly undernourished. They're stunted. They're vitamin and mineral deficiencies, deficiency diseases. And yet like 25, 30% of the women are obese. What's going on? I mean, clearly, yeah. they, they, this idea that they eat too much food and that's why they're fat can't really explain it. Yeah, that, but that's when pretty you look compelling. at what they are eating, the food that they're shipping in over the in the trucks are all refined carbs and sugars because that's not going to spoil. And the, the researcher who led the study said, "You know, now that I think about it, like they they basically lived on tea, iced tea, cold wow. tea, and they would put like three or four teaspoons of sugar into every." Class of tea that they drank. Wow. Okay, well, maybe now we can understand it. Yeah. You know, something that I hadn't
1: realized, I'd never thought of until I read a book called a Secret Life of Plants. I don't know if you happen to read it, it was like 34 years ago. And it talked about, I didn't expect the book to go in this direction, but when it talked about preservatives that came into our foods and white sugar and it talked about the fact that the reason these foods have such an incredibly long shelf life is because there's no life in the food. If you look at food that's alive it spoils very quickly.
0: And there's nothing that the rodents and the insects really want to eat. Yeah, um, so so that I know this is the s- idea that you could ship sugar and white flour around the world just put it in bins. Yeah, and you could ship it around the world, and it won't go bad. So you could use it to trade with populations on the way because it wasn't going to go bad; it wasn't going to spoil.
1: Yeah, that, that, and, that's pretty uh, amazing. And I and I realized, yeah. you know, and we won't attempt to explore this at all. I don't know that either one of us are qualified anyway. But yeah. about the whole maybe Ayurvedic and you know this other aspect of what is in the, the energy and the life of the food that we're consuming.
0: But yeah, well, no, I, that's beyond my own yeah. <laughs>
1: Last night at dinner, just on the topic of veganism, and then, and then we're going to transition to the lightning round. I'll ask you one or two questions about writing, and then we'll wrap up. Are you good, Are you good with that? Yeah, sure. Okay, okay. I know we've, we've, we've gone long, but I've, I've just enjoyed this, and I'm, I'm learning so much from you. At dinner last night, my wife prepared this chorizo, and it's a vegan chorizo. And uh-huh. so my 13-year-old son, like, you know, you have this 10-year-old, 10-year-old son. They, they I mean, both no, love 11 year old, basketball. No, 11-year-old, 11-year-old, yeah. His refrain always is, is is there meat is this meat and there's never meat it's not meat right but he says to our 6-year-old who didn't eat her vegan chorizo there are vegans out there right now who don't have vegan meat <laughs> oh my gosh and he was totally serious that was that was great anyway
0: okay oh by um, the way this is going to be my plug for a friend i Get no financial reimbursement for saying this, but I have a friend who created a company that's Keho Foods, K-E-H-O, and they're vegan ketogenic oh. foods, Kehoe, and they're delicious. Ke, Keho Foods, yeah, awesome. Yeah, no, they're K-E-H-O. really um, The only problem is my wife is a mostly vegetarian, tends to get to them before I do when I order them. But K-E-H-O, yeah. Right on. I will
1: check that out. Thank you for that. Okay, let's transition. To the enlightening lightning round. Okay. So this is a series of brief questions that I, so this is definitely a shift in the pace with which we've gone in the sense that I, my endeavor is to ask the question, step aside, keep us moving. For the most part, I don't plan to, to tug on your answers much. Okay. Okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... (sighs)
0: There you go again. Uh, Life is like a, I don't know. I Wow. It's got to be meaningful. Can't just be a cute cliche. Okay. Life is like a huge game of chess. Hmm. Okay.
1: Thank you. Number two, borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? We might have Uh, just spent an hour and a half talking about it. Yeah, we just spent a
0: few hours talking about whether or not obesity is caused by eating too much.
1: Okay, awesome. Thank you. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Uh,
0: There's never too much bacon.
1: (laughs) Okay, thank you. Uh, Number four. What book, other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often?
0: Honestly, A.J. Liebling's The Sweet Science. Oh, no, let me take that back. Norman Juster's Phantom Tollbooth. Oh, The yes. Phantom Tollbooth.
1: Yeah. What a wonderful book. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's great. What are you currently reading? I read a lot of books simultaneously for my life. And the embarrassing thing is that now that I read on Kindle, I often forget what the titles are. Hmm. So I'm reading a novel about the um, war between the Greeks and the Spartans. I'm reading The Three Musketeers to my sons because my youngest son got tired of me reading Terry Pratchett to them because Terry Pratchett was a little too confusing for him. I don't know if he likes The Three Musketeers, but I do. I, don't know, I read a lot of books on the sort of memoirs by scientists, and books about science whose titles, I mean, they stack up around me on my desk. So,
1: Right on. And you did mention The Sweet Science. Is that a book that you, that you like or you, you do recommend sometimes?
0: Yeah, well, I boxed when I was younger and stupid, and was a fan of boxing for a long time, less so now. And A.J. Liebling uh, was my favorite writer. That may still be, but Liebling wrote for The New Yorker uh, from about 19 late 1930s through 1962 when he passed away, and he wrote about Paris, World War II. He was a war correspondent. He wrote about boxing, and he wrote about the press, and those are all subjects I'm really Obsessed with, or was obsessed with, and he writes about them in a way that makes you think you're there. So there are boxing matches from the 1940s that I feel like I've seen from wow. the 1950s because I read Liebling's description of them. He's that that's cool. good. That's great. Yeah. And he's a wonderful pro stylist and very clever. Yeah, so. that's awesome.
1: Okay, question number five. So clearly you've traveled a lot in in your life. What, what are some of the things that you do when you travel or things you take with you to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable?
0: Well, I actually haven't, I traveled a lot when I was younger and for work and I always traveled for work. So that was, in that sense, I'm not a good example because I would always feel guilty on the trips that I wasn't working enough. And then I would feel guilty because I wasn't enjoying myself because I was trying to work or feeling guilty about not working enough. Uh, Guilt is part of my DNA. So, I can't really answer that question. Okay. Although I can say that I'd be happiest in life sitting in a cafe in Paris or Amsterdam with a cup of coffee and I may or may not go back to smoking if I ever get there.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. Okay. Question number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well?
0: Well, uh, regrettably or not, I gave up most starches and mm. grains and sweets. It is what it is, yeah. I don't okay. eat those carbs anymore. I eat a lot of green vegetables. I gave up a lot of bad habits, in part because they didn't wear well with me. So, yeah. Alcohol was another one. Nicotine was another one. Mm-hmm.
1: So. you'll you'll live longer right i mean
0: i might the questions will it feel right. longer because you yeah, know right. that old line about i mean i even my friend who recently became a vegan i want to say you know i like animal products anyway so yeah i i, I didn't do it so i would live longer though i had like i drink i get depressed the next day i spend the whole day wanting to cry even half a glass of wine will do that to me that's interesting so i don't drink if I, if you get a hangover you can take aspirin if you feel like crying all day long there's nothing i have found that could solve it other than not drinking so i no longer yeah. for the most part i don't drink anymore yeah
1: that that um, same with me i gave i gave up drinking a few years ago know how many years ago and and for me similarly i think it wasn't any kind of a moral thing it was just first of all i think i'm less of an (laughs) a-hole when i'm when i'm sober
0: yeah you know that's true of all of us yes
1: yeah but also less impulsive and moody during and following so yeah Yeah. i'm I'm with you on that one
0: so that was it i gave up smoking because i didn't like the way i felt when i smoked and i thought it was going to kill me in that case so i didn't do it thinking I would live longer. I did it because I didn't want to get lung cancer. And the carbs, I gave it up as an experiment. I tried Atkins as an experiment 20 years ago and I lost 25 pounds effortlessly. And by the time I had done the research, I concluded that I'm pretty confident what I'm doing is not gonna kill me in the short term. And it's in, I like the way I feel, so that's why I don't need no. it.
1: Yeah, awesome. Okay, thank you. Number seven, if there was one thing you wish every American knew? What is it?
0: <laughs> Carbohydrates are fattening. Um, <laughs> and uh, that yeah, obesity is a hormonal regulatory disorder. It's not caused by eating too much.
1: Okay. I, I wish
0: eight. it was more interesting than that, but
1: well you're nothing if not consistent and congruent. Yes. So there's something to be said for that. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Number eight. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work
0: well the cliche is to say listening but also to be able to apologize without adding a but (laughs) yeah to the sentence
1: yeah i'm i hear you there man okay number nine so we've talked about love we've talked about aging We've talked about pretty much all the eating, all the important things in life. We didn't talk about sex and we're not going to, but we'll talk about money with this question. What is the most important or useful thing you've ever learned when it comes to money or what's something you're always sure to do with it or never do with it?
0: Other than don't go into journalism. If you want to feel secure in life, financially secure in life, the, uh, I don't know. I mean, that you have to make more than you spend to uh, <laughs> to, to get by. Um, yeah, I don't have anything profound to say about money. Okay. I wish I
1: did. Okay. No worries. That's great. Okay. And speaking of money, something I have done as a gesture of gratitude to you for making time and sharing so generously of, of your knowledge and your experience is I have gone on the micro-lending site Kiva.org and I have made a $100 micro-loan to an entrepreneur named Ora Edia in Ecuador who will use this money to buy seed and agricultural product to help improve the quality, which she will then sell those, that, that produce to improve the quality of life for herself, her family, and her community. So thank you for giving me a reason to, to do that.
0: Oh, well, my pleasure. Yeah. You should have David Bornstein on your... I know that name. Okay. I don't know
1: David. Who is he?
0: David, well, last I heard he was running a website that uh, for journalists to actually write about solutions to problems instead of just problems. Hmm. But he also, his first books were on uh, micro-lending. Interesting. And, do you, is uh, he someone you know personally? I do, and I'd be happy to uh, connect you. I think, oh, you, would, you. Uh, I think you would yeah. really like David. He's a fascinating. He's done wonderful things in the world.
1: Awesome. I'll definitely make a point to look him up and uh, Mm -hmm. thank you for that. Okay. So I've left us only a few minutes for the final part of the interview, which is about the writing process, creativity. I know I have a question about sentences. I want to ask that. And then maybe just what else you would say, what advice or encouragement you would leave people listening with when it comes to getting writing done, getting it out into the world. So really these three questions. Number one, what does a typical day for you look like? Which I realize might be different when you've got a project, like a book or an article, but what's a typical day for you look like?
0: Okay. I mean, I, assuming the children are in school and not sheltering in place, and I have something I have to write, it's basically get up, have a cup of coffee, make the kids breakfast, get What time do you get up? You like uh, one of these 4 a.m. guys? Usually around, well, if they're in school, it's around 6.15, 6.30, okay. and they have to get on the road at 20 of 8, and get up to my... I'm only smart enough to write in the mornings, and so I try to dedicate my mornings to just writing. I don't like to write. To me, the process is Sisyphean, Sisyphean. So the advice is, you know, get up in the morning, roll the rock up the hill. (laughs) and the next morning get up um long ago i was when i started my career when discover magazine was owned by what was then time life and then became time warner and then became time warner aol and i don't even know what it's called anymore calvin trillin had been a writer for time and he used the phrase a vomit out which is basically like you just get the, i tend to freeze up when i write I feel a lot of pressure. I start to get depressed. That feeds back negatively on the writing. It gets harder and harder to do. But if I get a first draft done, I know I could edit any first draft into something that's good. So you just get it out there. That's the vomit out idea. So just keep writing, keep writing. Don't stop. Don't go back. Just get everything down that you want to say. And then like a sculpture, getting all the clay in one place, then you could start shaving it into something that is worth reading. And I define it as worth reading is by the time I'm done, if it looks like something I would want to read if I hadn't written it. Mm. And reads like it was written by a better writer than I am. Mm. So I like that.
1: This, So, you'll write in the morning, probably after yeah. you get the kids out the door normally. Yeah. And two, three hours? What's
0: no, as long block? as I can, as long as the caffeine is working, go as long as you can. That's why I'll schedule interviews like this one for around... You know, one o'clock, two o'clock my time, because by that time I start to, I can't make progress pushing the rock. And so I can do other things that don't require that kind of mental effort. And then, you know, ideally, I'm not good at this, but I should save all emails for the afternoon. I should save, you know, paying bills for the afternoon, stuff like that, making phone calls for the afternoon. And... Again, there's only that I can keep writing. I feel like I'm smart enough till about twelve thirty, one o'clock. So I try to hoard that time, and then, like I said, my brain just doesn't do it. Yeah. Um, what in your
1: experience? What, is, what are the qualities of a great sentence, and how do we write more of them?
0: Qualities of a great sentence. I've really thought about this. I mean, it's active. I was taught forty years ago never to use a passive construction. The language is precise, the words are interesting, it's short and understandable, or as short as can be, and I'm definitely one of my problems as a writer is I tend to overload my sentences, and then part of the editing job is to chop them up so that people can actually digest them. I mean, you're trying to hit a balance between writing that's interesting and entertaining to read and that... Gets the point across remember fundamentally I'm a science journalist, so we have it's you know it's it's trickier but ideally a sentence should never be boring. There should not be a boring sentence, but what makes it interesting is harder to define. Yeah
1: do you like to write with music? no music?
0: If there's music, my brain tends to follow the music, although there are periods in which I will. When I start to get nervous, I might play opera or something because you, the lyrics are not in English. The, if I'm playing something that I'm not familiar with it, so I can't sort of begin to get caught up in it. Because, mm-hmm. again, the idea is to focus on what I'm writing, not on anything else. But it's rare these days that I play music while I write.
1: When you write, what's your sense, if any, of the connection to the reader? Do you have and do you have specific kind of avatars or profiles in mind that you're writing for or specific individuals? Does it change like that? Something about that? Who do you what's your sense of being connected to the reader as you're writing?
0: Well, I'm everything you always One of the problems when I read young writers is they're often writing to show off. They're not thinking about how their readers are assimilating what they're saying. So it's always about writing to a reader. The argument, especially what I'm doing, because I'm trying, I'm, it's like I'm arguing to a jury in a, in a, in a, in a courtroom, and I'm presenting the evidence, and I'm presenting the witnesses, and so everything has to be planned to get the jury to believe what I think they should believe at the end of it. So you're always writing to them, and the jury is the readers, or the readers are the jury. I don't know if I succeed, because sometimes I'm stunned by what people take away from what I wrote. And I think it's always the writer's failure. You know, if they take away the wrong thing, you can't blame the reader. You didn't communicate it correctly, but it's you've always got to have a reader in mind. When I started at Discover, it was this sort of housewife in Kansas that they always talked about that had to understand. I, that must have been the... the iconic reader in for Time Magazine, because our editors had come from Time Magazine. I probably shoot too high. One of the problems is that I tend to argue in my head with my critics, so on some level I'm writing to them, mm-hmm. and now I'm writing above the level of the readers, and I probably lose readers because of that. I'm sure, you know, if you look at some of the Amazon reviews, people... Well, there are always going to be people who hate what you write, especially when you're arguing a controversial perspective. But yeah, it's it's always about the reader, everything. The book I'm trying, my next book, which is about diabetes, I'm struggling. I have to write a couple of paragraphs in order to get a paycheck because the case for keto has been delayed because of the coronavirus. So the publication is not going to be at the end of the month. So suddenly there's no publication, paycheck, and the only other way I can pay the bills is if I write two chapters of the book that comes after that, but I don't really know who I'm writing to yet. I haven't figured it out. On Mm. some level, I'm always writing to the medical research community, but there aren't enough of them to sell a book. Yeah. And if I'm writing to people with diabetes, and it's an entirely different tone, argument, sentence, structure, I mean, it's just everything about the book is different. Yeah. And I haven't figured it out. yet.
1: Well, I, for what it's worth, I I know you don't need luck, but I wish you luck with that because I know that's a (laughs) book that's going to bless lives, you know, regardless of who you write it for. It's, it's an important message, more important now than ever. What's your process? I know this could be a big question, but maybe there's, maybe there's a simple answer. What's your process for getting a book done from the time you settle on the idea to, you know, the time you submit
0: the manuscript to the, the publisher? I have I know that's big sorry I have yeah small processes along the way yeah and even the diabetes book it's a bit of a mess at the moment so maybe the wrong time to ask me because when I'm anything what the one thing I'm not doing is following a process at the moment you know like I said if you looked around my desk I've got piles of books on uh, dive where I'm trying to remember what was it I wanted in this book that I thought might be worth saying and why didn't I write it down when I read it instead of just marking it, highlighting it, and sticking it in the pile. What was, you know. I mean, the fundamental, because what I'm doing is trying to understand something that's either controversial or not controversial and most likely wrong, the first step is doing an enormous amount of research. Basically, you keep asking questions. Until you get answers that make sense, and you keep talking to people until you realize that you've run out of people to talk to. Like everyone I interview, I say, who else should I interview? Every time I read an article, I look at the references to the article to see what other articles I should get that speak to this subject. So... Eventually the returns from each subsequent interview get smaller and smaller where you realize that you have to start writing or you will go bankrupt because you've spent your advance. And now um, I keep notes for my interviews all in one file. I'll go through and sometimes spend as much or a month or two months just going back to the notes and actually sort of indexing them. And I have a technique I use to index my notes. I know what everyone told me. I know what important things they told me. I've, Flag the points they made or the statements they made that I think should definitely be in the book or maybe should be in the book. I have a system I use for that.
1: Is that system something you learned in in your study of journalism, something you've created on your own or something else?
0: It's sort of, some of my friends in journalism suggested parts of it and then it kind of evolved from my earlier work It's just a, a way that worked for me. Mm. Although I remember about a year ago somebody telling me about how a very famous journalist worked and his system turned out to be very similar to mine in that sense. So, you know, I'll go through all the articles and I'll create an index. So I'll have a file that indexes what I have learned. And then from that file, I can go through and pick out every major thing that I want to say. And I could kind of backtrack to the original interview or the original article and then fill in each point and build an outline. And every time I try to write, I invariably try to do it first without an outline and I can't get it done. Yeah. It, you know, you write for a few weeks and your points you're making curl up in a corner and die somewhere, and you go, okay. And then I. Then I realized that I'm gonna have to do what I've done in every other major article and book I've ever done and actually do an outline first. So I do the outline and then start writing from the outline and then you get into that vomit out process where it's just try to get through, say everything I wanna say and get it down. And then I could edit it into something that's worth reading.
1: Wow, that's that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that and breaking that down. And and uh, we'll wrap, I, th- I think this really is my very very last question aside from that advice and encouragement question is what technology, if what technology do you find indispensable?
0: <laughs> I mean, you know, the internet now, the internet, I wish probably it wasn't, word. but and word. Yeah. And that's, um, is
1: there any other like cool, I, I, some people uh, have, I think creative answers to this, but like Trello, Evernote, certain voice recording you know, apps, like anything.
0: I haven't, um, I mean, there's some terrific, and I'm going to forget the name of it because I've just been doing interviews where I've had to. Normally, when I do an interview with someone, I I transcribe. I basically take notes as they're talking, and I could get about 90 percent, 80 to 90 percent of what they're saying. So then, if I, and I'll use an online a way to record it through an app where you. Dial the the app number and it starts recording. Then you dial your source. So I'll have a backup of a recording if there's something I don't know. And then there's a great website where you could send interviews you've done and they will charge you a dollar a minute and do wonderful transcriptions. And, um, but I feel if I don't transcribe it myself, I don't really process what they've said. There's something about trans, like I'll tape interviews or record it, or even when I'm just talking to them, if I don't, if it doesn't go through my fingers, it's as, almost as though I can't assimilate it and really, uh, process it. So if somebody else transcribes it, it it's not as useful to me. Yeah. Although I've heard
1: others say something similar. There's yeah. something
0: about that for sure. But the, the process of transcribing, though, can, um, be nightmarish. When I finished the research for my first book when I was at CERN, I told you I lived in, you know, outside Geneva for 10 months, and then I went to Paris to write it, and I had this beautiful apartment in Paris. I was 29, 30 years old. I spent the first three weeks trying to transcribe three hours of interviews a day, and so that wow. took me about 10 or 11 hours of typing to go through, and it got to the point that I'd have to buy, you know, bombs for my hands too, but I just wanted to get, I had 75 hours of tapes to transcribe and I just wanted wow. to get it done. And I knew if I didn't do it immediately, it would never, these tapes would be wasted. And it was, you know, <laughs> there I am in the most beautiful city in the world and like March, April, in this beautiful apartment, miserable while I'm transcribing wow. these tapes.
1: So. That's amazing. Well, hearing that, you know, your, your commitment, your, the, the willingness to move immediately in, into action toward you know a definite result, like these kinds of things. I'm really inspired by that and I suspect people listening will be as well because many people dream of writing a book but they're not willing to put in that kind of effort. So, Well,
0: the difference between being a professional writer is you don't have any choice. Mm. So it's sort of, I mean, in this case, I get this advance, I fly off to Geneva. Back then, it was a tiny advance. I can't believe I lived for a year and 15 months in Europe on, you know, a $30,000 book advance where you get half. I mean, you don't even, it's crazy. But once you're committed, you don't have any choice. There's no, you're not doing it as a hobby or a, it's yeah. just, you've got to write the book. And because if you don't write the book, you got to give the money back. And you don't have the money because you spent it <laughs> doing the research for the book. So it's an interesting life. And it's funny because some of the critics of that first book in particularly were, um, I think I mentioned Christopher Lehman Howe talking about, you know, he was just, you didn't talk about scientists the way I talked about it. I mean, I had seen some awful things in my 10 months embedded, but you're supposed to treat these Nobel laureate scientists with great respect and admiration. And I wasn't doing that, but what I had seen, I had a report what I had seen it's just what I, I didn't really have any choice. Although I could yeah. have done it better. He was certainly right about that. <laughs> yeah.
1: We can always do better. Yeah. Well, what, if any, what final advice or encouragement would you give to anybody listening who either wants to be a better writer, wants to, be more productive as a writer, wants to make a bigger impact with their writing? Anything related to the creative process or writing at all?
0: You know, again, I got lucky, I'm in another, I fell into a career that matched what talents I had to a subject that people cared about. On some level I'd say, I'll however many books. Five books. I have six books with keto. I've all been on the same subject. They've all been on good science and bad science. And the first two books sold about 7,000 copies each because they were on high energy physics and cold fusion. And then they go up by orders of magnitude because they're on nutrition and something people care about. So, you know, I don't really know how to answer. I mean, part of it is just like I write because it's what I am and what I do and I'm an investigative it's become sort of, it's a manifestation of who I am. I don't know how to do anything else for a living, and I don't really want to do anything else for a living. And I think that kind of, it's as much a trap as it is something, you know, a a benefit that I have. But I think if you, to do something meaningful and to have impact, it's got to be who you are. Yeah. And you've got to be willing to, you've got to accept. I mean, my favorite line about publishing, this is the one advice I give to younger writers when their first their books are coming out. And I don't want to discourage them. But back in the mid-80s there was a I heard this from a science journalist who had a, enough sense to leave journalism in the eighties and he went out to Hollywood to become a showrunner for um Law and Order. So he did very well. Last we heard from him, he was complaining about the contractors on his ten million dollar house. You know. He said, "The month before your first book come, month before your book comes out is the calm before the calm." OK? And you've got to be willing you've to that's the reality with huge proportion of all books that come out. Like I said, I've managed to escape it once I got into nutrition and obesity, but even then it's my fear. You know, the case for keto, I think it's a hell of I think I'm really proud of that book.
1: Is he meaning so? Just to make sure, I understand what he's saying. Like that, when the book finally is released, that there's not much ado because people don't really care.
0: Yeah, there's. It's you expect things to change because you've spent years on this book, right? Ideally, and you do all the go through the editing with your editor and the publishing process, and then you expect something to happen. And from for the most books, it just doesn't. Right. You know, and, and it's just, and there's always this fear that even with, like I said, with The Case for Keto, that's my fear, that despite everything, despite how good it is, despite the name I have, you know, I'm not Michael Pollan or Malcolm Gladwell, so I'm not gonna, you know, it's, I'm a level or two below them in writing, and it's just that nobody will care. I mean, now there's a world of, you know, there, there's a, you, know, you write these books because you want, people to care you have something that you think has to be said and you spend a lot of time saying it as well as you humanly can within constraints and you want people to care and often they just they barely notice because there's a lot going on in the world yeah
1: more now you know. than ever
0: one of my, my best friend uh her she wrote a book that came out on september eleventh, two 2001 wow and you go to amazon That's the pub date, September 11, 2001. It sold about three copies to me and a couple of her other friends. You know, it's just you have to be able to deal with it. And there's thousands and thousands of books published every month. Yeah, And maybe 5% get reviewed. I don't know what the number is. And most of the, you know. So it's sort of you have to do it because it's what you do. Because you, yeah. in fact, almost because you have no choice, and then you have to be able to roll with whatever happens. How's that for inspiration?
1: I think there's something about that that's really, <laughs> it's really beautiful, you know, and it's honest, and yeah. to you know to prepare people for the reality of this path if it's what they choose. And I know, you know, many times in life we don't know whether something's our path until we're willing to walk it.
0: Yeah. So well, that's the thing. It's sort of you make these decisions. I like, so I was a. I went into physics. I wanted to be an astronaut because I read science fiction books when I was a kid. So I wanted to you know, explore strange new worlds and new civilizations and boldly go where no man has ever gone before. So that meant that I studied physics or astrophysics, which I did, except I wasn't really very good at it. So then I study journalism and I become a journalist. And then I managed to become kind of an investigative science journalist. And for the past 20 years, I've been writing like trying to change the world of nutrition and obesity science there's nothing in my youth that would have prepared me for this mm. you know and yet this is what I am and what I do now
1: mm. well thank you for thank you for sharing that and and I know this has been this has been a, a lengthy interview but as i said a couple times in the course of it i've really enjoyed it i suspect listeners will enjoy you know anybody who's listened this far as well who's interested in writing and creativity i know they'll be taking away something useful from this as well. As I said too, I really acknowledge the work you're doing and sorry to hear that I mean sorry and I'm glad, I guess, to hear that case for keto's been pushed back. Hopefully it will find the audience it deserves, you know, because of that.
0: Oh well, we ho, I mean the publishers are dealing with how do you publish books when bookstores aren't open.
1: Well Amazon sells eighty percent of the books anyway. Uh, yeah, well, fifty
0: last time I heard, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's more now, yeah. I had I had
1: a call with Ryan Holiday. You know, the, that guy that wrote Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, he's, he's kind of a, you know, but he knows a thing or two about publishing and has an agency, you know, where he works with some of the top, you know, people in personal growth and inspiration and things like that. But yeah, no matter, I mean, he he also told me there's kind of what you were pointing to, there's more than a million books on Amazon that have a zero sales. That's amazing. So there's definitely an art and there's luck,
0: timing and, and other factors. It's like buying a lottery ticket and if you're really good and your publishers are really behind it, it's like buying a hundred lottery
1: tickets.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then you can get, uh, you know, a reviewer who's in a bad mood that day. Or maybe his book, last book, didn't sell. And, you know, it's an interesting world. Let's just say if my kids decide they want to be journalists and writers, I'm not sure I'm going to be the most supportive dad (laughs) although i haven't figured out what i would like them to do other than something meaningful that ideally i guess helps people yeah that
1: sounds pretty good well gary thanks again for making time i really appreciate this i'm so glad we've connected and i will look forward to staying connected with you online and and wherever our paths cross in the future
0: terrific thank you brian this has been enjoyable
1: Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing. I've developed a 36 week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at com or by visiting goodliving.com.